Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this 200th episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, we celebrate with special guest and six-time New York Times bestselling and award-winning author John Hart, whose latest book, The Unwilling, is the subject of this episode. In his very first historical novel, John Hart returns to the South. The book is set in Charlotte during the height of the Vietnam War. It's a novel inspired by the courage and sacrifice shown by soldiers who fought in that conflict. Booklist calls the book another scorcher. Mystery and Suspense Magazine describes the book as a very enjoyable, twisty ride. AARP uses the words unforgettable and propulsive. Silver New York Times bestselling authors say the book is crime fiction at its absolute best. Richly complex and somehow raw, tender, brutal, and exquisite, all at the same time. Exceptional. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotteroospodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Landis. Um, You know, Charlotte is near and dear to my heart and, uh, you know, it's connected to this book in a pretty powerful way. So I'm really happy to to be with you today. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And and I love having you on the on the 200th episode of Charlotte Rears podcast. It's hard to believe I've been doing this for 200 episodes. But uh, first of all, um, the pandemic uh, has sort of played an evil uh, antagonist for you and your book. You were (laughs) this was going to come out, uh, you know, sometime earlier and you had to push it back. How's that experience been for you? So let me just see if I can remember this correctly. The original pub date was June of 2020. 
And as we all remember, things were really coming off the rails in March and April. Um, and it was around about then that we decided that we just needed to push the book. I mean, at the time, pretty much every bookstore was closed. Barnes and Noble had closed 400 stores. Um, Amazon was not even shipping books that, you know, I mean, Amazon was not shipping books because they was all um, emergency supply related. They want to keep their channels open for people that needed things to survive, which is completely understandable. Um and, and looking back, I can say, you know, a lot of really good books that came out March, April, May, June disappeared without a ripple. You know, they just sank like a stone. Nobody heard about them. There was you know, just it's really a tragic loss for a lot of these writers pushing it out until uh, February of this year. The book came out uh, February 2nd. You know, that that comes with its own frustrations as well. I mean, you know, those of us that write for a living, we, we don't like sitting on our babies. We, we want our children out in the world um, forging their, their way. Um, and there's, I think there's also, and, and I can't explain the mechanics of why this is, but there's something that is lost in terms of internal momentum when a book is delayed. So if you picture a publishing house as all these people in moving parts and there are you know, dozens and dozens of people involved in the launch of a book like this, you know, everybody's excited, everybody's fired up, and then they're told, okay, well, don't think about it for 10 months. And then right before it comes out, let's get fired up again. Well, by that time, you know, they've, they've moved on to other things. And, you know, so it's, it's uh, there's a, an intangible loss, um, I believe, that, that's just part of it. I mean, I'm not complaining. It could have been worse. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also just not being able to be in the bookstores and connect with the readers and be out there directly with them. That's, that's frustrating too. Well, let me, let me say a quick word on that because that, that was a big part of it. When we delayed it, it was in hopes that we would be able to do a physical tour. Um, the tour that was scheduled was six weeks long, uh, 35 cities. Um, I think I had two days off pretty much, maybe three. And that's standard. I mean, normally it's, uh, it's 35 to 40 cities and I love it. Writing's a lonesome business. So getting out on the road is meaningful. Um, you know, we did some really great virtual events with big name authors uh, that were kind enough to do, but it's just not the same. I mean, we all know it's not right, the same. Right. Yeah. And you finally got to come on Charlotte Reader's podcast. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, uh, you know, this has been the highlight where, you know, we've been trying to get a spot with you. For I know you've been trying for a long time now. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for finally uh, yeah. accepting our, our entreaties. Yeah, and speaking of that, you're six-time New York Times bestselling author, the only author to win the Edgar Award for Best Novel consecutively, winner of the Barry Award, the Seba Award for Fiction, the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award, North Carolina Award for Literature. And despite all those literary awards, uh, regular readers really do enjoy your books. Uh, so uh, what's the secret, John? Uh, well, I, I can't speak to the universal secrets. Uh, I don't have the, the ear of uh, anyone that can explain them to me. But, you know, in terms of what's worked for me, um, you know, I, I think it's this. I like thrillers. I like to be dragged through the pages. I, I like to be up at one in the morning, desperate to read one more chapter. I mean, I, I'm an escapist at heart. That's what I enjoy. Um, but I'm married to a woman who's smarter than I am. And <laughs> prettier than I am. As we most, most of us are. <laughs> and she likes literary fiction. Um, she likes deeper backstories and meaningful character uh, interactions, you know, the kind of things that stick on the bone long after you've read the book. You know, she, she, and she really cares about the inclusion of some meaningful thematic elements and explorations of, you know, all the things that make us human. So I decided, I, I actually wrote two failed novels. And by that, I mean, no one would represent me or publish me. I mean, they were colossal failures. Um, I decided to try to write a book that I would enjoy and she would respect. And so it, what it's led me to is 
I, I, I refer to from time to time as a writer of literary thrillers, and I, I have mixed feelings about that sobriquet. Um, but, you know, I spent a lot of time and, and have discovered a great joy in writing deep characterization, spending a lot of time with the language, not, um, you know, insane, dense prose, right, but but evocative prose. And, and so if you can wrap all of that up into the kind of story that keeps a reader up until one in the morning, you've got something. And so that's what I aspire to do. Yeah, that's great. I really enjoyed the book. It is that. I mean, I enjoy Thriller too, but you also take us into the minds of these uh, characters in the book. And it's very fascinating. We're going to get to that in a moment. Before we do, just a follow up to that last question. Um, it's interesting to me with all these books and all the success you've had, John, um, you know, you had a post on your website where you talked about uh, how even with that success, you still sometimes have doubts. You know, there are always lingering doubts. Is the book going to be any good? Are people going to accept it? All this kind of thing. Uh, it's really kind of encouraging to other authors, I think, young authors too, to know that someone who's, you know, done what you've done still has those doubts. Why, why do you think that is? Um, you know, probably a dozen different reasons. Um, you know, the the life that this affords is so unbelievably wonderful. I mean, it's I refer to it as the ultimate expression of personal freedom. You know, you make enough money to do what you want and you get to live where you want and write what you want. And if your readership is large and loyal, the publisher is your ally, not your employer. I mean, it's a really liberating kind of thing. And I feel um, deep down that the universe must have plans to take that all away. And so there's this, <laughs> there's this fear um, that I'm going to reach down and come up empty, whether it's for the right story idea or the right word or the right turn of phrase. And it's not uncommon. I, I think that, um, a lot of successful novelists that I've met, you know, have a streak of humility uh, deep inside them. And I, I mean, I've heard people with 21, um, you know, number one bestsellers say that every time they, this, this is a woman, I won't name her, but every time she starts a new book, she, she's in dread that she won't be able to finish it. You know, that's after 26 mm -hmm. uh, bestsellers. So, you know, I think it's that. And, and also I've been stung. I mean, I've, I've started books and uh, a year later thrown out the entire effort um, and once you give up a year's you know, serious, committed effort, you realize that it can happen, and it's mm -hmm. terrifying the thought that it could happen mm -hmm. again. Um, but but it's it's just look. I, I think as soon as it, there's some there's some intelligent um, turning of wheels behind this as well. I, and, I, and by that I don't mean I'm super intelligent, but I, I think that if um, a writer becomes hubristic or begins to take this for granted you know, or really just thinks he can roll out of bed and bang it out without a lot of effort. That's the first step on the road to destruction. And so it is self-serving to remain somewhat fearful because mm -hmm. it, it hones the senses and sharpens the intent. Yeah. Well, speaking of the good life, the writing life, um, I want to talk to you about a, a previous life. You, you like me, were Davidson College graduate. You're a former defense attorney. You're a former stockbroker. I didn't do that. I was a trial lawyer. Uh, recovering trial are you now? We have that in common. Um, but uh, I'm just wondering, I, I, know, I think I know the answer to this question. Do you regret all those court dates you've missed? <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, I, I was a reluctant attorney, uh, even from the get go. You know, my my path to law school is one that I would recommend for no one. And for me, it was simply I decided 
uh, after a lot of struggles to find something meaningful that if I didn't have it figured out by the time I was 30, I would just go to law school, you know, and reboot. And that's not the that's not the right reason to do it. And so um, but keep in mind, at that point, I'd, I'd done a master's degree um, and written my first novel which again was widely unpublished. And uh, in law school, I wrote a second one, which was equally (laughs) unpublished. Um, So I I was kind of struggling to find this path, but I just, you know, it's even with all the MFA programs and writer how-to books, there is no certain path for this. There's no person or entity that can stand behind you, tap you on the shoulder and say, you're doing this right and it's going to pay off. Um, but I, so I was raised to always make sure that I could pay for my way. I mean, to feed my family. So, you know, I, I outlined my first novel when I was 20, wrote my first when I was 27, didn't get published until I was 40. So along the way, you know, I, I educated myself, I built careers, you know, so that I, if my passion failed to deliver, um, I'd still be able to feed my children. So, mm. um, but all that being said, th- there's just, First of all, all those criminal defendants were pretty much guilty, if not <laughs> if not what they were charged with, something equally reprehensible. Um, At least none of gave, them, gave you some good material anyway, right? Oh, look, I, I would have never had this career had I not had that time uh, in the law because it just taught me so much. I, I was a bit sheltered growing up, so I didn't understand all the things that can happen at the back end of these uh, dirt roads and places like Rowan County. Yeah. Well, listeners, we're going to, I'll tell you a little bit more at the end of the episode about what we're going to do on Patreon. In a sense, we're going to go talk more writing life with uh, John. And uh, we may talk a little bit about how he segued from law practice to writing. Uh, I do I do just a, a little snippet on that, John, before we get to the book. And that is, I, I came to an event one time uh, at Parkwood Books where you and John Grisham interviewed each other and y'all are friends and you talk. We may talk about this some on Patreon, but uh, uh, th- this gets to your writing a little bit too. You, you Y- y'all were sort of poking fun at each other about how he writes and how you write and that kind of thing. But but you got to the point where you're talking about how you don't always know how it's going to turn out. And you told the story about how some reader knew. <laughs> Do you remember that? Remember that oh, story? Yeah. yeah. So so John is an outliner, um, and I'm a grope and hope you know pantser. I mean, I write by the seat of my pants and hope that I can find my way. I think that that uh, I I can't say that John's smarter than me because that would make him (laughs) smile. Uh, Outliners, I think, generally have a different mindset, you know, that they can see this whole story from a bird's eye view before they start writing the prose. You know, those of us who feel our way, um, it's a little trickier, but more exciting, I think. So um, the story was, you know, I I always start a book and I I write a number of characters that could be responsible for whatever the foul deed is. You know, they've, they've got secrets and inexplicable motivations. And we, we don't know what they're really about until much later in the book. And I do that because I don't necessarily know who did the bad deed for what reason until I've lived with these people for say six months. So, you know, usually around page 150, 180, you know, I finally figure out here's the reason that all this happened and the reason this person did the bad thing. And, and yeah, so people come to these events and I can generally see them coming because they have a very self-satisfied smirk on their face. And they'll say something like, you know, I really loved your book, but I knew who did it on page 50, (laughs) to which I invariably reply that they must be very, very uh, learned and wise because I didn't know who did it until page 150. (laughs) Is that that. the story you're talking about? Yeah, that's the one. one. I I got a kick out of that. Uh, Okay, well, we're going to segue, but before we do, uh, part of this COVID thing, you've had to do other things too, you've had to actually uh, communicate uh, online, set up a Twitter account. I went to your Twitter account, John. You describe yourself as a tractor-driving, dog-loving, book-writing family man. 
it sounds kind of like the refrain to a country western song. So, so my question is: Is your tractor sexy? Oh, my my tractor is so sexy. I, I just uh, I just bought a grapple for the front loader so I can pick up fallen trees. Uh, the only thing that's not sexy about my tractor is it's not as big as I want. So I've got a much bigger one coming at the end of this month. So okay. I'll keep my small tractor for clearing the trails and my big ones uh, my big one for the fields. In fact, I'm breaking ground this week on a new barn. I, I realized when I bought this tractor, the big one, when I ordered it, that it wouldn't fit in my existing barn. It was something I built on a budget years ago. And so, you know, the, the simple desire to have a larger tractor has now led me to a you know massive new structure on the, on the farm, but it's fun. Well, that's great. Well, Craig Johnson, who is on our show, he writes the Longmire series. He lives on a ranch in Wyoming and he's always doing the same kind of thing. He's on a tractor, he's building barns. I'm just wondering, does that uh, difference between what you do when you're behind the desk, does that give you ideas? Do you come up with things as you're riding that tractor? Yeah, in fact, it's exactly like that. Um, most of my best work, and I suspect this is true with a lot of writers, uh, happens away from the keyboard. You know, And, and for me, it's anything that's uh, sort of repetitive and can be done without a lot of deep thought allows my mind to wander and, and really run scenarios and um on the tractor, you know, if you, if you're cutting a hundred acres of field and you're just going around and around or back and forth, it's very easy to just zone out and think about the books. Mm. Um, yeah. and so I, and the same thing when I drive, if I get stuck on a scene, I'll just go for a drive and, uh, use it by the time I come home, I've got it figured out. That's great. Well, let's do the, what if for the book, uh, the unwilling, uh, it's your latest book. Uh, and it's, um, it is set in Charlotte. We're going to talk about that too, before we're done. Uh, a little bit about the what if before we have a little reading from you in the beginning of the book. Um, the the incident that you use as the what if for the book is something that I studied when I was at Davidson, the, the My Lai Massacre. Talk a little bit about how that, uh, you know, that came to you and what you wanted to think about as you sort of put this book together. Yeah. So the, um, you know, the question, the sort of the big question that writers get is where do the ideas come from? Where do you get your stories? And it's often a very difficult question to answer. I mean, it's almost invariably a difficult question to answer. Um, but there was this incident in, in the Vietnam conflict, and I believe it, yeah, in fact, I'm certain it did. It occurred in 1968. Uh, it was called the My Lai Massacre, the My Lai Massacre, um, basically a company of poorly led, kind of war-crazed U.S. soldiers decided for whatever reason that what they really needed to do that day was slaughter an entire village of innocent civilians. Um, you know, no VC were there, no weapons were found. Uh, over 500 people were, were murdered, women and children uh, included. And, you know, widely considered to be the worst atrocity of the war. Well, in the midst of this, as it was happening, a man named Hugh Thompson Jr., who was a helicopter pilot um, with a two-man crew, intervened. I mean, put himself and his crew between these soldiers and these uh, innocent Vietnamese uh, at no great risk to himself and, um, you know, reported what was going on. And uh, anyway, the, the way it shook out, the military, being the military, covered it up. Uh, and to facilitate the cover-up, they vilified Thompson and his crew. Now, for 30 years, they wouldn't acknowledge what they did. And they probably never would have, except a year after it happened. Seymour Hirsch broke the story and won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And, you know, national outrage followed and trials and all these things. But it was this – so I, I, I read about this ages ago. I mean, long before I even conceived of the book. But this idea of these people in this helicopter and the pilot in particular, this concept of moral – and physical courage, regardless of cost. You know, they they had no skin in this game. They were literally flying past and saw what was happening, um, and yet they they 
put their lives at risk and, and in fact, didn't ruin much of their lives. I mean, for 30 years, these, these guys were, were vilified, um, eventually given the highest honor the Army could give to you know, soldiers not directly involved in combat with the enemy. So anyway, that, that story inspired the character of Jason French, who's one of the two main characters in this book. And basically, this is a man of exceptional um, courage of many types who is vilified and largely misunderstood, you know, even by his own family. And so part of the, the fun of writing this book was keeping this information away from the readers, painting Jason in, in a certain light and not revealing what he truly is all about until near the end of the book. And because the other main character is his younger brother. Um, you know, who's the only one that sees good in him, it, it creates an interesting tension. Yeah. And that sets up our first reading a little bit. We're starting uh, near the beginning of the book. And here, this is a, a reading. And Gibby, you mentioned Gibby French. He's the, he's the young uh, kid who's in high school, the youngest brother of Robert and Jason. Uh, Robert, uh, you're going to hear his name in this reading here. Um, Jason, you just mentioned Anything else you want to set up uh, here? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I just just so there is some context. So, this is 1972, uh, shadow of the Vietnam War. There are three brothers in this family. Um, the oldest two are twins, and Robert was born on one side of midnight, and Jason on the other. So Robert actually uh, was drafted. His his number came up, and he went over and died pretty quickly. And Jason, for reasons that we won't get into here, decided to enlist. Uh, and served three tours, um, and, and yet, you know, lauded as a wonderful soldier, yet came home on a dishonorable discharge and addicted to drugs and criminal activity. And the book opens, he's just um, been released from prison and has come home. Then the younger son, who's two weeks away from high school graduation, is trying to decide what sort of man he's going to be. He's he, college-bound. He has a deferment from the conflict, and yet he feels this com this compelling question, should he enlist? You know, both of his brothers were Marines in Vietnam. His father was a Marine in Korea. Um, so it's a coming of age story in many ways and about what type of man Gibby decides to be. So uh, the scene takes place uh, on a Friday. It's called Senior Skip Day. The people look away, the teachers look away when the seniors skip and they go to the quarry and drink beer and, you know, hang out. So that's where they are. They're at the quarry. And this is um, beginning of chapter two. And I'll say this too, Landis. I've done exactly three. Now, this will be my third reading in my entire career. I, I don't ever read my words aloud. Seriously, I did it twice. Uh, hated it with an abiding passion. I just and, and I'm doing this as a favor for a fellow Davidsonian. Well, okay. I really appreciate that. Martin Clark, he may know, had the same, I know Martin. Martin had the same issue. He was on my podcast. He said he never reads, and he did me a favor too. So I really appreciate this, guys. And uh, it's part of the brand. We like to hear it in your own words and. I understand. I understand. And just a, a quick aside, Martin uh, blurbed my first novel. He was kind okay. enough to read it and give me a blurb. Okay, so chapter two, first uh, beginning of the book. The quarry means different things to different people. For me, it's about the drop. They say it's 130 feet from the top of the cliff to the top of the water. And from the water, that feels about right. The granite rising, the gray sky above that. All that sameness makes the cliff seem small. And I know what people think floating on their backs or looking out from the narrow shore across the quarry. I could do that. The more they drink, the more certain they become. It's only water, they say, just to dive. How hard can it be? But then they make the climb. 
The first good ledge is 60 feet up, and people do jump from it. A few might make it to the next good ledge, call it 80 feet. Somehow that looks twice as high as the one right below it. Those who make it all the way up tend to lean out from the waist and look downward as if somehow the laws of physics might have changed on the way up. 70 miles an hour when you hit the water, four full seconds to get there. From 13 stories up, the water looks like plate steel, and people remember the stories they've heard. The kid who died back in 57, the ball player who hit wrong and drove a knee through his jaw, breaking it in four places and shattering every tooth on the right side. I've seen it a hundred times. The boys go pale and their girlfriends say, I take it back. Don't do it. I'm not the only one who's jumped. A few others have too, but only one person had the balls to dive, and that was my brother, the dead one. Come on, man. If you're going to do it, do it already. The voice was behind me, my oldest friend. You know Becky's watching. I looked into the quarry and saw Becky Collins on an inner tube a hundred feet out from the cliff. She was as small as the rest, but no one else wore a white bikini. Her head rocked back, and I thought she might be laughing. The girl beside her might be laughing, too. Around them, a collection of rafts and tubes held half the senior class. The rest were on the far side of the quarry or in the woods or passed out in any of the cars that glinted in the distance like bits of colored glass. Are you making this dive or not? I looked away long enough to catch the gleam in Chance's eyes. He was a small kid but would fight anybody, try for any girl. Maybe she's looking at you, I said. I'm not dumb enough to jump off this rock. I wonder what that said about me. I jumped seven times but never made the dive and everyone down there knew it. I'd sworn to do it before graduation, but that was two years ago and I'd been angry when I'd said it. Do you think I'm stupid? I asked. I think you're a rock star. McCartney or Jagger? Chance offered up a devil's grin. That depends on if you jump or dive. I looked away from my friend and thought about hitting wrong at 70 miles an hour. Beneath me, people began to chant, dive, dive, dive. When my brother did it, it was a swan dive drawn against a high pale sky, and I see it still in my dreams. The way he rose and hung, and then the long fall, no breath in my lungs, and how his hands came together an instant before he struck. Only three of us were there to see it, but word of it spread. Robert French made the dive off Devil's Ledge. Did you hear? Can you believe it? At the time, the world record cliff dive was only 15 feet high or some guy in Argentina. But this was Charlotte, North Carolina, a little place in 1967. That was five years ago, but on that day in this little city, my oldest brother became a god. People asked him why he did it and how and a thousand other questions, but only four of us knew the truth that mattered, and I dream of that part too. The way light hit his face when it broke from the water, the eyes that looked brighter and more alive. Let the Viet Cong touch that, he'd said. And that was the thing only a few of us knew. Robert was going to Vietnam. That's it. That's my reading. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. I'm telling you, you know, if, if you ever need to do some audio work, uh, I think you're, I think you're the guy. You know? <laughs> uh, well, thank you for that, Landon. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let's talk about the title just a second before we go uh, into a couple of other things. Uh, the title is The Unwilling and it's inspired by a poem, I believe, The Unknown Soldier, and you talk about that, uh, uh, we the unwilling, led by the mm -hmm. unqualified to kill the unfortunate, die for the ungrateful. Um, did the, does a title like that, does that come to you? You talked about how you, you find out middle of the book, the motivations and of some of your characters and who did it. What about the title? When does it come to you? Titles are tough. You know, titles are like names. They need to seem as if they 
we're born seamless into the entire project. And it's hard to do that. Um, so I've written seven books and I think I had the title on page one for three of them. I knew what I wanted to call them. Uh, the last child, iron house, um, the hush, everything else was an absolute nightmare to come up with a title. You know, I finished the book <laughs> and I work with uh, my editors and some people at the house and we probably went through a few hundred ideas and then a, a writer of mine named Corbin Addison, I mean, a, a writer friend of mine, a buddy named Corbin Addison, um, who writes beautifully, um, suggested that I turn to the poets. You know, we, we mm. prose writers don't like to turn to the poets. You know? <laughs> yeah, we like exactly. to do this all on our own. But I thought, yeah. I thought you know what? Why not? You know, he, he comes up with these amazing titles. So I, I started looking into poems about war and brotherhood and things like that. And this is what led me to that quote from The Unknown Soldier. And, you know, thinking about it, there are so many people in this novel that are unwilling, I mean, because of the circumstances in which they find themselves. So it, it took months uh, of back and forth with the publishers. And the one lesson I learned is that titles should never be settled on by committee. You know, it's uh, it's not the right way to go. Somebody's always got a problem with the thing that, that you love. And as soon as you invite that debate, you're beholden a little bit yeah. to the process. And um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not eager to do that again, but sometimes I have to. That's interesting. Well, before we get to the uh, inciting incident and some of the motivations in this book, talk about the setting. This is Charlotte Reader's podcast. We've got an author on who's written a book set in Charlotte. I grew up during this time period. I don't remember it quite like the way you've put it here. It's a little bit more edgy Charlotte, perhaps. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> talk about the Charlotte that you knew versus the Charlotte you created. Okay. So that that's fair. And in fact, uh, in my, um, in my foreword, I believe it was the foreword, I kind of apologized to the good people of Charlotte. <laughs> no, um, apolo no apologies required. <laughs> well, I wanted I wanted to set it in Charlotte because, you know, I, I grew up right up the road. I went to school right up the road, and I know Charlotte. Um, and we'll, maybe later we'll talk about why I picked 1972, because uh, that's kind of an interesting thing from my perspective. But uh, I did need to dirty the city up a bit. I needed to make it larger, a little more violent. But but there there are some elements of truth in it. Um, I mean, in 1972, there were outlaw motorcycle gangs moving into the city. I mean, there were Hell's Angels. There were pagans. You know, there were there were parts of the city infested um, with drug problems. I mean, big time uh, drug problems in Charlotte. Um, you know, so, again, I did have to I had to step up the game a bit because that's just the type of books I write. You know, I, I've, I've done books in small, sleepy towns, but I needed this one to be a little bit bigger. It's the same. You know, I asked uh, Grisham at that same event I was talking to you about or uh, why he always made lawyers out to be, uh, you know, evil incarnate and, and liars and stealers and thieves. And he said, well, it wouldn't be very interesting if I if I talked otherwise, you know. Uh, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> true. You know, the uh, I, the way I phrase it is that no one wants to read about, you know, a lovely day shopping at Uncle <laughs> Mills Mall. Yeah. Exactly. You, need, you need to put some heat under these people and uh Turn it off. Exactly. And speaking of the heat you put under the people, um, you do this uh, because you build this family around a father who's a detective. Uh, you've got these three boys who are all very different. Um, the father doesn't know. Well, this gets kind of back to the inciting incident. In the beginning of the book, they find out that Jason is back in town. He's gotten out of prison. You know, he's gone to prison. We don't know why. He's back in town. The mother don't want to have anything to do with Jason. Because the the golden boy has died in Vietnam. Jason has gotten into trouble. He's doing drugs. He's and all this stuff. And so you don't really know why, but the father is not supporting the son and and but he wants to shield Gibby from 
Jason. And so we've got this struggle going on, but then you introduce this scene where the brothers get together, you're on this road, there's a prison bus, this thing happens on the prison bus. And I kind of got the sense that this is a prison somewhere an hour away from Charlotte that maybe you took and you sort of changed it entirely because you made it almost like a Shawshank <laughs> redemption type setting, you know, and in mm-hmm. the basement of this prison is this guy whose only name is X. Tell us about X. Yeah. So uh, keep in mind, you know, Southern Gothic is fun, right? Right. And, right. And, so, and, and I like to have some elements of Southern Gothic in my stories. And so much of that is visual. Right. So hmm. I, I can't have central prison in Raleigh. You know, right. I've done that before. It's, right. you know, 1960s red brick utilitarian. You know, right. I wanted something a little bit more ominous. And so what I did basically was took what had been a weapons depot uh, before the Civil War was converted into a union uh, POW camp for union soldiers and then expanded into this, you know, 4000 acre prison farm. Um, and, you know, and I just I, I shamelessly use author's license. And I, I mean, I, I'm un- utterly unapologetic uh, yeah. in, in every sense of it, except again in apologizing to the good people of Charlotte for dirtying their fair city as much as I did. Um, so X is um, X is this fascinating guy. He, he lives literally in the sub basement under death row. He's sentenced to death. In fact, his execution is pending. Um, we don't find out exactly what his motivations are until later in the book, but we do learn early that he has uh, a very unusual fascination for Jason, Gibby's older brother. It's not a sexual thing. It's not a, you know, prison boyfriend thing. I mean, but there's, there's something about Jason that this guy X is really fixated on. And X is, uh, I describe him as the most dangerous man alive. And, and he really is, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's on death row for having murdered 69 people that we know of. Uh, he's richer than God. He's got this massive uh, inherited fortune that allows him to buy guards and uh, outside agitators. And so he, he, he wields a lot of influence for a guy on death row. Um, you know, the warden in particular is in his pocket and, and not only is he wealthy, but he's not scared to, be pretty brutal in getting what he wants. So this this thing happens on this empty stretch of road where Gibby and his brother and two attractive uh, women are in a convertible after a day of drinking out at Lake Norman, uh, back before all the shoreline was developed. And um, on this stretch of empty road, they pull past the bus, um, and one of the women, Tyra, who I describe at least you know not in the book necessarily. I don't use these words, but what she is is she's she's venal and cruel and sadistic and selfish and, you know, desperate for distraction. And so in a drunken state, she decides it would be a lot of fun to taunt the prisoners in a very sexual, uh, suggestive manner. And it leads to a riot on the bus and a bloody beatdown. Well, this this idea goes back probably 30 years when back when I was a young man and, and had convertibles. <laughs> I don't mess with that anymore. But I remember driving past prison buses with a pretty girl in the car and thinking, God, it's got to be really weird for these prisoners to see this ultimate vision of freedom and uh, life, you know, convertible on an Opie road, you know, young man with a, with a pretty girl. And, you know, but they can see my license plate. I mean, if they, if somebody on that bus develops a fixation, they can probably find me. So that that thought has always been in my mind as a possible inciting event for a story. And so I decided to do that um, because I really, but keep in mind, I'm a crime fiction guy. I'm I'm a thriller guy. So I love layering foundations with family, especially dysfunctional family, things like um, 
the Vietnam era and all the conflicts rife in that time, but it's a crime story. So you got to have some, some bad people doing bad things. And, um, I wanted to honor this idea of the heroic helicopter pilot in the confines of a crime story. And so for that, I needed a really good bad guy and X is it. Yeah. And, and what, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but just to set up what we're getting into here is that, uh, Je- uh, there is a violent murder that takes place and Jason is, uh, you know, framed for it, uh, we think, or we don't know, but anyway, he's, he's accused of it. And so Gibby's trying to come to his defense. His father's not, not so much because the de- detectives are after his son. So you got this whole who done it, but also a why done it, which interests you more, the who done it part of it or the why done it part of it? No, it's always the why done it. Um, one of the things I learned in my time you know, at the bar, behind the bar, before the bar as a you know, defense attorney, um, is that there really are no criminal masterminds, which mm-hmm. is kind of funny because X is a criminal mastermind. Probably <laughs> the first, first one I've ever written. Um, but, you know, normally you know, people do bad things for these stupid reasons, short-sighted, mm-hmm. selfish-based reasons. And then the repercussions are enormous as these ripples move out into the families and communities of the, the victims, et cetera. Um, so why these things happen is, is really super fascinating to me. And it's why I generally don't have all the pieces in place until halfway through the book, because, you know, the reasons have to be uh, believable and yet subcutaneous at least in the early part of the book, you know, you can't broadcast what's happening and why. And then at the end of the book, when the reveal happens, it has to feel so organic to the reader that they marvel at the fact they didn't see it coming all along. So those are sort of the moving parts about, um, about this part of writing that, that I find really challenging and the, and the why these things happen is integral. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier, uh, 1972, and there was a reason for that year. Well, uh, 72, I, yeah, I'll give you the um, the bird's eye view and then the specific view. Um, so bird's eye, I was seven years old in 1972, and my memories of that time are very innocent, like like a lot of us. I mean, I was playing in the creeks and riding bikes with my friends. I had no idea that the world was in such a tumultuous state, and it really was. I mean, it's not unlike some of the things we're dealing with now. You had, uh, you know, war and Cold War and political corruption and inflation and uh, you know, Kent State shootings and prison riots. And, you know, there's all these, you know, racial strife and there were riots in Wilmington, North Carolina, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was a really challenging time for this country. So what I wanted to do was pick a time where I could introduce two characters, one who would represent my recollection of the innocence and simplicity of that time. And that's Gibby, the young, overprotected 18 year old who's about to graduate from high school. And then a character that represents the reality of what that time really was. And that's Jason, who's hardened by war and, um, you know, bitter because of all these bad things that have been done to him and, you know, violent and capable and um, and misunderstood. And so the idea was to put those two characters and the forces they represent into conflict and and see what I could do with it. Um, specifically, 1972 is I needed it to be while the draft was in existence. But the war had to have been going on for a while because, uh, you know, the one brother died five years earlier and Jason had to serve those three tours plus a couple of years in prison. So, you know, you start doing the math and, and find the, the right fit. Now, John, did, did you search for the genre you wanted to write in, uh, this crime fiction genre, the same way you sort of search for 
you know, why your characters behave the way they do? Or did you just start out with the first novel and say, okay, this is what I'm going to be writing? Did you try some other things? How did you find what fit for you? So I never set out to write mysteries or thrillers or crime or anything like that. I just wanted to write a good story. Um, and bearing in mind that this was after my first two failed novels, which were, you know, plot heavy and character thin, mm-hmm. I needed a story that would, um, you know, reveal uh, this character as the layers are peeled back. I like to describe it as uh, turning up the heat and cooking mm-hmm. off all the soft bits and seeing what these people are really made of. I think it was Jocelyn Jackson has a great quote. She said, the best way to introduce your readers to the people you've created is to put those characters all in one room, lock the door and set one of them on fire, <laughs> which, you know, makes a lot of sense because until that person's on fire, you don't know what everybody's going to do. I mean, somebody's liable to panic. Somebody's probably going to beat on the door and hopefully somebody's going to put out the fire, but you don't know until yeah. the match is struck. So um, what I discovered is I sort of, again, just felt my way into this is that if character matters, it's about revealing those characters and what they really will do. Uh, and you can't do that again if they're shopping at Concord Mills on a lovely spring day. I mean, you need to you need to turn up the heat and cook away the soft parts. And so, crime uh, and the things that are attendant to that sort of stuff is really the perfect um, you know saucepan. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and as I work on my fourth book, and I interviewed over two hundred authors, and I study writing as we all do, and I think about this. Something clicked with me recently. Somebody said it was. Uh, you know, come up with the characters, some really good characters and let them reveal themselves by the interesting plot that you create. Mm-hmm. You know? And and by doing that, you're not so tied necessarily to this plot idea. You're tied to figuring out how your characters are going to react to that. Plot See, plot. let me let me give my two cents on that, because I think that's spot on. Um, so what I've asked, I've weighed into this a few times so I can speak it pretty quickly. What I always try to start with is the main character. Uh, maybe one or two others, but people that I understand. And usually it's two or three emotional drivers that need to be explored through the story. Um, you know, are they guilt ridden? Are they angry? Are they, do they feel rejected? You know, are they whole, are they broken? Um, you know, what, what is really driving them, you know, deep down where we can't see it. And then it does become an effort in creating a plot that allows those elements to be revealed, but not only revealed, dealt with. You know, the character has to grapple with these issues and then through that struggle become changed by the end of the book. Because you, you obviously you need the great story arc, but the characters have to grow as well mm-hmm. or the reads flat. So, yeah, it's, it's really about the people. And, and that's what's interesting about this book. Uh, you do it very well. All of the characters change. Gibby changes, Jason changes, you know, the father changes. I'm not so sure about the mother, but, uh, no. you know, but, but, but even, even X changes to some extent. So, you know, it's, it's all good. I, I love that. Well, look, we're going to have to um, jump over here and uh, to, to our Patreon channel listeners. Let me tell you about that. We're going to be going to Patreon. That's P A T R E O N.com forward slash Charlotte readers podcast. We're going to continue the conversation uh, about uh, John's writing life. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here uh, just with one or two final questions. John, um, this book, uh, is this six or seven? Let's see. Seven. 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 So you've been at it for uh, seven novels. You've done very well. If you could tell your younger writing self something very helpful that you've learned through this entire journey. My younger be. self. Yeah. This what, what, is what, interesting. What, yeah. Yeah. I don't, normally, I, I, I'm really quick with advice to yeah. you know, aspiring writers, young writers. Yeah. I, I can answer that question all day long. What would I... What would I say to myself? Um, okay, I, I can say a couple things. Um, first of all, 
it's so much harder than you think it is. <laughs> and I, I was so naive. You know, I just thought I could bang yeah. out a book, sell it for a yeah. million bucks and never have yeah. to go to law school or have a right. job. You know, and, and, and I thought that getting published was it, but, but that's not it. I mean, it's getting published is hard enough, but making a living at it is, is even harder. I mean, I've heard somewhere and I've heard this number multiple times. It may be uh, apocryphal. I don't know, but that, you know, there may be 400 people in this country that actually make a living off fiction to the point that they can do their, their lives. I mean, mm-hmm. raise their children. That's a very small number. So I went into it blithely. Um, and yet I believe that without that willful, if not, um, you know, joyful ignorance, I would have never undertaken it. I, it would have mm-hmm. been too discouraging. So mm-hmm. I, I would just say to, I would say to my younger self, and keep those blinders on. <laughs> of course you can write a yeah, bestseller. Exactly. That's great. Well, John, I want to thank you for uh, being here with us today for the 200th episode of Charlotte Rose Podcast and also for kindly reading a section of your book uh, and, uh, you know, wish you well with the sale of the book and uh, everything that goes with it. Yeah. Thank you, Landis. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City Podcast Network.com.